I'm, uh, I'm going to be starting a new, a new series uh, just titled Restore. Um, I believe there's some things being restored to the church. I want to uh, jump into that in, in just a second. But um, before I do, let me pray over our, our message tonight. Actually, let me read this statement first, and then I want to pray. Why does it seem so difficult to experience the kind of unity that Jesus prayed for in the garden? His words are still ringing out today. I pray that they may all be one. Father, listen closely to this. May they be in us just as you are in me and I am in you. Let that sink in for a little bit. Think about the, the kind of unity that he's talking about, that they may be in us just as, Father, you are in me and I am in you. You see, I believe the church does not need a reformation. This is an unpopular opinion. I actually shot a little reel about this today. Uh, I've thought about this for a very long time. And I don't, I don't think the Reformation reformed anything. Remember Martin Luther nailing the 95 Theses to the, the door of the church? What it did was restore a revelation that had been hidden or lost or covered up. And that revelation was simply that, hey, the just shall live by faith. I mean, it, it goes beyond that, but really the Re Reformation didn't reform the church. It was just the largest church split in history, and we've been dividing ever since then. We continue to divide over these nuanced doctrines that split us. And Jesus is asking us, hey, I want to see you in unity. So how do we get into this unity? I believe that this is happening through a greater revelation of the good Father that Jesus revealed. The Spirit is restoring the body of Christ to be life and light and love in a time of darkness, death, and fear. So what's our role? How do we participate? Well, for starters, we need to shift our attention from the chaos around us to the kingdom within us. Father, we love you. We thank you that you have absolutely finished all the work through Jesus. Jesus, we thank you for what you are willing to go through to become one of us and rescue all of us. And now, here we are, navigating this path in life, wanting to bring this kind of unity that you speak about, wanting to bring this oneness that you speak around about, and we thank you that that kingdom that produces that resides in us. I thank you tonight that there'll be some things uncovered, some things revealed to us that are being restored to the church so we can walk in your love like never before. Amen. Man, I can get, I can get in agreement with that prayer. <laughs> Definitely. Okay, so let's, let's talk about some things I specifically believe, and I believe this is, is prophetic. This isn't just Derek making stuff up. I've been talking to some other people about these things, and like, what, what is it that needs to be restored to the church? The, one, the first thing I think about is that we have to have a shifting awareness toward the kingdom. A shifting awareness toward the kingdom of God. That our awareness isn't about all the things that are going on chaotically around the world, distracted by all the mess and the fear and the anxiety, but we are, remember this? We are citizens of another kingdom. You, you remember this, right? This, this is who you are first and foremost, citizens of a kingdom. And I even think coming into this election year, there's so much um, striving to produce division. Well, this is, this is not right. I mean, 
Striving to produce division is literally anti-Christ. And we are of another kingdom. And, and Jesus said this kingdom dwells within us. But let's, let's remember something about the kingdom. Jesus said in Matthew 6.33, above all, above all, consistently and constantly seek God's kingdom and his righteousness, then all these less important things will be given to you abundantly. And this verse was such a powerful promise in my life when I was lacking everything. Man, I've been at that place where it's like, man, I just, I just need to be able to pay my rent and, you know, I need to be able to eat and I need to be able to do, you know, whatever the next thing is. And Jesus very specifically gives us this, this, not formula, he gives us this kingdom principle that says, hey, if you'll seek first my kingdom, my way of being right, my way of having joy, my way of having peace, then I all these other things, I'm going to take care of that. See how I care for the birds in the air, the lilies in the field? I mean, sometimes we need to go to nature to get a better revelation of how good of a provider God is. There's more species of flowers than have even been discovered. How extravagant is our God? Do you think he will fail in taking care of us? No, absolutely not. But he asks us that we seek first his kingdom. And not to earn anything, just because we're citizens. We're sons and daughters of that kingdom. And in seeking first his kingdom, we will represent a good father to others. In Luke 17, some Pharisees asked Jesus when the kingdom of God would come. And here was his answer. The kingdom of God does not come in such a way as to be seen. No one will say, look here, it is, there it is, because the kingdom of God is within you. We, we don't have to go to heaven to bring the kingdom down. The kingdom is within us. The fullness of the kingdom is within us. And we have full access to all the resources of heaven. A friend of mine, Dub Alexander, says this. I love this definition. He says, the kingdom is the extension of the heart and authority of God from heaven on earth through you. Isn't that good? Let me say that again. The kingdom is the extension of the heart and authority of God from heaven on earth through you. Now, this authority from God is not an authority to dominate, but it is an authority that will produce dominion. The authority of God is very simply summed up in the word love, and that love will never fail. So when, when we have to think about authority, we have to, we have to, this is an area where we need to shift our awareness towards kingdom thinking. It's not about dominating in politics. It's not about controlling the next election. It's not about making all the laws. This authority is the law of love. This authority and heart of God is what we carry, and from heaven to earth, it comes through us. Last week, if you didn't catch the message, hopefully we'll have it up on the podcast, but I just kind of laid a foundation about the restoration of love being at the center of everything because God is love. So this, this extension of the heart and authority of God from heaven to earth, like, how does it work? I mean, have you ever wondered, like, how does that work? I mean, I feel like I've maybe operated in it at times, and I don't know, what does it mean that the kingdom's within me? Well, here's some ideas as to how it works. Jesus used this illustration. The kingdom of heaven is like the yeast a woman used in making bread. Even though she put only a little yeast in three measures of flour, it permeated every part of the dough. 
I like to think of the kingdom activity that is working through me as being planting leaven in everybody's lives, planting that, that growth. In every, and it may not see, you know, immediate responses. But don't get discouraged because the kingdom will not fail. And when we plant love and joy and peace, when we plant patience and kindness, when we plant with a motive of no self-seeking, when we operate in this kind of love and plant in people's lives, the, the kingdom is being inserted and it's beginning to wake something up within them and it will not fail. I, I believe this. I believe this with all my heart. Here's another aspect I think that's going to be um, changing. It's going to be restored to the church. And I hope so. I really hope so on this one. I've got all my eggs in one basket on this one right here. I believe that we as people of the kingdom, the body of Christ, followers of Jesus, are going to have a higher capacity to stay connected while holding differing convictions. But even though we have different ideas and thoughts about politics, even about the Bible, about God, could it be that we could operate in such a love that we can stay connected even though we have these differing opinions? And it's not just with those who call themselves followers of Jesus. I'm talking about what if we had this mindset and mentality with every person on the planet that we come in contact with? You know, I can't, I can't fix the, the war that's happening right now. I can't change anything. I can pray for peace. I can pray for people. But I, I can't change anything. But what I can do is I can, I can change myself, and I can begin to help other people know about this good, good father. But I can't if we're arguing about it all the time, if we're arguing about the nuances. One thing that I've been really diving into, and look, trust me, I'm not perfected at this. I'm a professional arguer. So ask Sarah. She'll tell you. But the more dogmatic you get that God is love and that love is the only command, the less dogmatic you can be about it. You can't force people into this. Love requires consent. And, and there's sometimes you're just going to have to go ahead and... Know, you, have you ever known when you know you're right? Like, I know I'm right, but I'm going to just not enforce that right now for the sake of peace in this situation. I know you know what I'm talking about. And that's exactly what happens when we have a higher capacity to stay connected while holding differing convictions. Difficult conversations should not divide us. They should help us understand each other. We should shoot for curiosity and understanding in our lives with one another. So here's a couple of things that I think have been dividing the church that we probably need to let go of. Actually, I'm just going to dive into one of them tonight for the sake, for the sake of time because the Dolphins and the Chiefs are playing pretty soon, right? <laughs> I know Stafford wants to get out of here. Here's, here's, here's something that I think needs to be dismantled this year, that the restoration of original rev revelation in this area I believe this, this one thing is going to be dismantled this year. And it has, a, it has a name, Penal Substitutionary Atonement. I believe that's going to absolutely be quashed because it is 
causing so much damage in the body of Christ, and it has for years. And we've accepted it whole cloth because some of our authorities maybe spoke this to us as being, this is exactly what happened. Here's what happened in penal substitutionary atonement. God's wrath had to be satisfied because sin requires judgment. And God poured out his wrath on his son. God killed his son. Jesus saved us from God. This is penal substitutionary atonement. It's very transactional. It's very legal. And yet this is something that we have absolutely swallowed as if it is exactly what happened at the cross. And I think there's a lot of better options. That's why it's called a theory. (laughs) Anyone catch that? And it's actually a relatively new theory. Because when we start looking at the God that Jesus revealed, if Jesus truly is perfect theology, if Jesus is what God has to say about himself, then we had a God who was willing to go to the cross for us. We have a God that is not wrathful in any way. You know the word wrath, it means violent retribution. No, our God is merciful and restorative. What if, what if? Paul was right in his epistles when he said God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. What if, what if this Father, Word, and Spirit have never been separated? What if there's a better way that God, who could not die, had to smuggle himself into death, and therefore he became human, one of us, to rescue all of us, and blew death up from the inside out? That sounds a little better to me. Does that resonate with you in any way? I believe that that absolutely has caused so much destruction. Here's why. If you believe in a God who uses violence to accomplish his kingdom, then you will accept violence as a means to fulfill any work. I'm not saying you absolutely are going to be violent, but you'll be on one side of the war or the other instead of on the side of people, human beings. Do you hear what I'm saying? This, this, this theory has been so destructive. And this is what I grew up with. I completely grew up with this my whole life and accepted it as no problem whatsoever. I think we need a greater willingness to discuss, discuss these kind of difficult things in Scripture with the aim of finding the beautiful image of Jesus and the image of the Father that Jesus revealed. Jesus never used violence. You're like, well, what about that whip in the money changers table? You know, I get this pushback like all the time. First of all, he meticulously like put it together. That took some time. Um, I, I believe whips and cords are what are necessary to drive animals out. He never whipped anybody. There's no mention of him like whipping a person. Flipping over the money changers tables, there was no loss or harm done to anybody. He said, take the birds out in the cages. Have you ever seen those wild vignettes of like Jesus just going crazy out of control, whipping and beating people and birds are flying and coins and, you know, have you ever seen that? Do you know that, I don't, I'm not going to get into this. I'll, I'll talk about it later. That, that actual event took place in a very, very small area in the temple grounds. And it likely wasn't a disruption of the entire place. Anyway, I digress. Um... I'm going, to get, I'm going to get into why penal substitutionary atonement theory, what was taught, but also why we need to think differently about that in the light of the good father that Jesus revealed. But here's, a, here's another thing that I think is going to happen this year. 
people are going to begin to gravitate towards and understand that Jesus is the Word of God. Jesus is the Word of God. Now, we know this, right? But I also call this the Word of God. My Bible is the Word of God. Well, your Bible contains words of God, about God. This is where we find the story of Jesus who revealed the Father. But I think the Bible also reveals us. It reveals what we're capable of assigning to God that has nothing to do with his character. Is the Bible authoritative? Absolutely. Is the Bible inspired? I believe so. But I think it's inspired for a lot of different reasons. And that's why Jesus had to take those two dudes on the road to Emmaus, back through the scriptures, and say, hey, here's how it points to me. And here's how it points to the good father that I've revealed. And I believe that that's, there's going to be more uncovering of revelation and a restoration of what that conversation looked like. Let me give you a couple examples. This is where we get the transactional, uh, the transactional reason why God had to kill his son with penal substitutionary atonement theory. And we get it from Abraham and Isaac, don't we? The story goes that God shows up, asks Abraham to kill his son, and then Abraham, being a person of faith and trust, says, okay, well, I'm going to go do this. He didn't hesitate. Immediately goes to do it. And then, of course, that action is stopped. And we have this new revelation, like an uncovering of who God is. And it says, no, no, I'm Jehovah Jireh. I'm the one that will provide. I'm going to provide the sacrifice. And there was a ram in the thicket. You know the story, right? Well, um, first of all, do you think for a second that a good, good father is going to ask someone to kill their son? Could it be, just imagine with me a little bit here, could it be that Abraham lived in a culture where firstborn sacrifice was a given? Everybody understood we sacrifice our firstborn to the gods, whatever gods they may be. And whatever encounter Abraham had with, with this deity, with this loving God, could it be that he translated that into, well, uh, okay, but I'm going to have to do this. Then I'm going to have to do this. It's an option. Why don't we talk about it? Because to me, that brings more clarity to the God that Jesus revealed. And it doesn't get this dualistic mindset about, well, you know, good cop, bad cop. Why do we think that way about God? I believe Jesus wants to rewrite the story and bring us into further revelation. But that's where that transaction thing, I've heard this actually preached, that God could never have legally entered into the earth to rescue us via the cross of Jesus unless Abraham had done that. First of all, I I don't think God's a bait and switch God. I'm going to ask him to kill his kid, but I'm not really going to go through with it. We don't tolerate that kind of stuff, do we? I'm asking you not just to use your minds and read scripture, but I'm asking you to use your hearts and let Jesus be your teacher as we go through these things. Here's another aspect uh, where the, the script got absolutely flipped. Jesus has sent his disciples out. They're going city to city. They go to this one city, and they're like, um, they rejected us. They don't want anything to do with us, Jesus. And being good biblicists and knowing the scriptures, they're like, hey, um, Jesus, you want us to call down fire from heaven on them like, like we saw in the, in the prophet of old? First of all, 
they're not going to call down fire from heaven. They're asking Jesus, if you really are who you say you are, then, you know, you did that back there. So can we do that here? Can we have that kind of judgment here now? What did Jesus say? He said, you don't know what spirit you're of. Hmm, interesting. There's another spirit that celebrates steal, kill, and destroy. Not our father. Not our good, good father. I would say it this way. I, look, I love my Bible. I love my Bible. I'm so thankful for my years and years and years of study, and I will never give up on the Bible. I'm not dissing the Bible here. I'm just saying that the written word has to submit to the living word. Does that make sense? Spreading a gospel of separation divides people. Proclaiming the gospel of union draws people. Finally, one, one thing that I really believe this year that prophetically is going to begin to help shape the body of Christ and help restore us to a greater understanding of what it means to be citizens of the kingdom. And that is that perfect love melting all fear, including the fear of the Lord. <laughs> what do I mean by that? Well, how many times in Scripture did a heavenly angel show up or, or God himself or possibly Jesus, and, and the first thing was what? Be not afraid. But don't be afraid. Don't fear. Don't be afraid. I mean, how many times is that just throughout Scripture? Hebrews 12, 28 says, since we are receiving our rights to an unshakable kingdom, we sang about it tonight, we should be extremely thankful and offer to God the purest worship that delights his heart as we lay down our lives in absolute surrender. Listen, filled with awe. This is, this is, this is, John Bevere wrote a book years ago called The Fear of the Lord. Many of y'all have read that book. I read that book, John Bevere, I, I respect John so much. And, uh, but I remember reading The Fear of the Lord, and I remember thinking, oh, I'm just not afraid enough of God. I, I, need, to, I need to be more fearful. And I, I understand it means awe and reverence and, and all these things. But I was really like, man, I, I, I really feel like I should like, be afraid that something might happen if I do something wrong. Anyone else had that kind of fear surrounding? Let's be honest in here. <laughs> John, John actually... Uh, recently changed the title of that book. He re-released it and completely changed the title to The Awe of God. And he's teaching it in a little different way. And I love that. I'm so thankful. Why? Well, because awe is greater than fear. Fear is not allowed in the life of love. Perfect love, what? Casts out all fear. And, and you can get into the semantics of the language that's used, but I know that there's a lot of people who are afraid of God. I used to be. We're to be amazed by grace, not afraid of God. Robbie Atwood, I, I talked to him today, and he, uh, he was like, yeah, man, you can use that quote. God has not given you the spirit of fear. Therefore, if there's any message that stirs up fear, it's not of God. Something to think about. I believe we need to be restored in this area. 
I'm going to finish with this verse tonight. We're going to receive communion. If you uh, want to receive communion with us this evening and didn't pick up communion elements on the way in, would you just raise your hand in the air and the usher will come around and serve you communion elements. But as we're preparing to receive communion, um, I want to read this verse, and I want, you, I want this to just sink in over you tonight, okay? And we're going to keep this conversation going because I think there's things being restored to the church that are amazing, things that we are, go, are going to just shed and change our minds about because we were thinking wrongly about God. George McDonald says that one day people will be abhorred by what they thought of God. Jesus is how I think about God. We have come into an intimate experience with God's love. And we trust in the love he has for us. God is love. Those who are living in love are living in God, and God lives through them. By living in God, love has been brought to its full expression in us so that we may fearlessly face the day of judgment. Because all that Jesus now is, so are we in this world. Love never brings fear, for fear is always related to punishment. But love's perfection drives fear, the fear of punishment, far from our hearts. Whoever walks constantly afraid of punishment has not reached love's perfection. Beautiful.